welcome to Deep North. My name is Eric Pomeranke, and we're here today in the studio with Iceland Review Editor Greta Sigurður Einarsdóttir. We are going to be revisiting her 2022 piece, Home Cook, a profile of the Westman Islands restaurant Slipperin and its chef, Gisli Matthias Oydensson. Up, down, up again. A fleeting moment of calm at the highest point. Down again. Tourists whooping as the boat rolls in the waves. I, on the other hand, wasn't enjoying that lurching feeling in my stomach as the boat dipped with the green-tinged waters. My face was turning a similar hue, and even when we reached solid ground, it took me a moment to recover. The ground in question is part of Heimae, the largest island of the Vestmanaer archipelago, just off Iceland's south coast, and I was here to talk about food. The ferry ride is only about half an hour on most days, and is generally a perfectly pleasant experience. Even the rough weather this morning hadn't deterred a full boat of day trippers on their way to visit the islands, see the puffins, hear about the 1973 eruption, and, most importantly, taste the food. Vestmanaer have been lauded as the country's most exciting culinary destination outside the Reykjavik city centre, even though the volcanic island isn't home to any agriculture. The islands are home to a high percentage of fishermen though, and a chef called Gisli Matthias Oydensson. It's way too big, I don't know what we were thinking. Gisli tells me as we look over the dining hall of Slipperin, the popular restaurant he runs with his parents and his sister. This year marks the 10th anniversary of the spacious eatery. It was really my mother's dream to start the restaurant in this building. She always thought the building looked so grand and that it was sad it wasn't in use. Gisli explains as we look around the workshop turned industrial chic restaurant. A family gathering turned into a business meeting and overnight the family became restaurateurs with Slippering opening its doors for the first time less than a year later. We didn't really have any capital to speak of and no investors. Each nail and every pipe were hammered and laid by my dad Oden and my sister Indiana. She has a master's degree in visual art as well as being a carpenter. He is a jack of all trades having spent more than 50 years at sea. My mother Kata had worked in restaurants before but I was just graduating as a chef. On the occasion of the place's 10th anniversary, Gisli discovered a social media post he wrote on opening the restaurant. Despite all the changes, the ups and downs, he was surprised at how well the original concept held up. We wanted to make the locals proud, celebrate ingredients from around here, fully utilize our resources and work with the local flora. From day one, we've been using herbs and kelp from the island and berries when they're in season. His mom still grows the herbs they can pick wild in pots on her windowsill. The only thing that has changed, according to Gisli, is that each year they try to do what they do a little bit better. Slipperin is very much a Vestmanaea restaurant in the sense that the food they make couldn't be made anywhere else. It's only open during the summer season, 
when the chefs can rely on the fresh bounty of plants growing on the island. Even on a rainy afternoon, the island's bounty looks luscious, green plants providing a striking contrast to the black sand from the 1973 eruption. The feeling I want people to leave with is that this is the only place in the world where they can taste exactly this kind of food, Kisli tells me. We won't offer a filet mignon with truffles and caviar. We don't see that as unique. Instead, Slipperin focuses on seeing the value of the ingredients that are underutilized. To me, that's a real luxury, Gisli says. By now, we use over 80 herbs and plants from the islands in the kitchen, and the food we make has developed based on the ingredients available. When they started out, Gisli really didn't know too much about herbs. Mostly we were using angelica, sorrel, and arctic thyme when it was in season. Maybe croperies in the fall. For the past decade, Gisli and his team of chefs have studied the plants that grow on the island, tasting them, and figuring out which ones they can use. Take angelica, for example. Early in the season, you can only use its leaves. As it grows, the stalks can be used, pickled and so forth. When the seeds appear, we can gather those and make a sort of a version of capers, use it for tea and more. By the end of the season, the root becomes edible, but at that point, the stalks have become too woody. Gisli doesn't claim to know every plant on the island, but we've learned a lot. And we've had help. We've had botanists with us and an expert in kelp. So we try to gather more knowledge as we go along. This kind of cooking is relatively new to Iceland, no doubt spurred on by advances in new Nordic cuisine. Older cooking traditions were victims of the rapid urbanization of the 20th century, and much of the old ways of using nature's resources were lost. I think Icelanders are only just beginning to scratch the surface of what we could be doing. Restaurants could take another look around and find the value in things that others don't see. There was a massive awakening when Noma started with her new Nordic cuisine. We're influenced by that 100%, and people, not only restaurateurs, but also customers now see value in local cuisine. People are realizing just how huge a part food is of each country's culture and history. Kistli has done his part to raise awareness of traditional cooking methods. When I was involved in Reykjavik restaurant Matur and Trikkur, we went deep in discovering old references to lost cooking methods and reawakening them with a modern twist. With so much knowledge lost, the island's flora is a constant spring of new discoveries. So many things have surprised me along the way. There's a herb known as pineapple weed. It's a herb that closely resembles sweet chamomile, a plant that's used for teas and such. When it's fresh, it smells and tastes like pineapple. Gisli plucks a fresh bud, crushing it to release the fruity aroma. And I'm surprised to discover that the exotic tasting plant is familiar, although I've only ever viewed it as an intrusive weed. It's amazing to taste these exotic flavors in the middle of a lava field in Vestmanair, Gisli continues. This summer, a friend of mine had a cocktail pop up with us. He used a type of grass known as bison grass. He made a syrup from it that tastes like vanilla. Apparently, bison grass is rarely found in Europe, though it's prized for its aroma, but grows abundantly in Iceland. 
and no one realizes, Gisli exclaims. I've told this story before, but one time when I was an intern at 11 Madison Park in New York, Gisli tells me. On my first day there, I got an assignment that I hear is set for every new chef in their kitchen. You're given a timer and told to have a dish ready in 20 minutes. You can use any ingredient in any cooler or cupboard, except for foie gras, truffles and oyster leaves. I knew what foie gras and truffles were, but what were oyster leaves? I finished the assignment, it was terrifying on all that, but afterwards I got curious about the leaves. I looked into it to see what the fuss was about. In the walk-in box was a small box of leaves. And I realized after running Slipperin for three summer seasons, these leaves grew wild all over Iceland's coastline. He hands me a thick, bluish leaf that tastes fresh and ocean-like. I was told that they were importing it from Alaska, paying one dollar per leaf. By now they figure out ways to cultivate it and the price has gone down. But it was wild being there and realizing what treasures we have in our backyard. In Gisli's kitchen, they keep the hazing at a minimum. We decided from the get-go to keep a healthy work environment. We stop all such nonsense that has permeated this industry. It's a dying culture, luckily. Arrogance isn't tolerated. It doesn't lead to good results in the long run. Another thing they decided from the start and has stuck with them is a sustainable approach to making food. Although I've come to dislike that word, sustainability. It's so easy to throw around these days, Gisli scoffs. The same with local food. I like to tell people we're simply trying to make good food. In the Slipperin kitchen, there's no such thing as food waste. We buy all fish whole, for example. We use the heads and the skin and the collarbone. So many restaurants these days aren't just going local, but also zero waste. We're always trying to do better, Gisli tells me working on fermentation and preservation methods for byproducts, trying to plan for it to get back on the menu. We use the heads of the fish and make stock, and everything that's left over will ferment and use to make our own fish sauce. That's 100% utilization. We also use vegetable peels, making all sorts of stock. We're working with a local brewery, using leftover beer grain to make spent beer grain crackers. We're not perfect, but we're always getting better. This is what Gisli means by tweaking their methods a little bit each summer, adding a new herb to their roster, filleting their fish in a chilled environment to ensure maximum freshness, and using fans to improve air circulation when curing fish. Gisli is making a name for himself in Iceland's culinary scene for his homegrown expertise, so much so that he is the guy that the president calls when he hosts dinners at the Bessastadir presidential residence. His wife is a real foodie and very interested in serving great local food. With a book on Slipurin out by distinguished publisher Faidon and media coverage all over the world, including a recent appearance on the BBC, Vestmanayar has become a food destination. There's a lot of people that travel all the way to Iceland to be able to visit Vestmanayar just to have some good food. Some days, Gisli can feel the pressure. You want to be able to give people the perfect experience. And with such a large place, that can be hard work sometimes. We're pretty much booked full every night. The restaurant opens at 5 p.m. 
and by that time we have to be done filleting 120 kilos of fish and picking all the herbs we need. Picking fresh herbs sounds romantic, but the reality is that we have maybe an hour to pick sufficient quantities of the seven herbs we need that day. We want everyone who visits us to have a wonderful memory of spending a summer evening in Westmanair. While business hasn't always been easy, the lack of external investors does allow Gisli and his family full creative control. We used to have a burger on the menu, Gisli gives as an example. But in the second or third summer, we realized we weren't getting our message of the local food experience across. It was so easy to point to the burger, order something familiar. So they took their most popular dish off the menu. When you're struggling financially, that's a hard decision. Another such dilemma occurred the following year. By that point, the most popular menu item was the minka steak. We bought that from whalers who only caught minka whales. But when they quit, we could only source minka from one other company, one we didn't have as much trust in. That was another hard decision. We used to have groups come here just to order the whale. But we knew that if we wanted to stick to our ethics, we had to. Staying true to his principles, Gisli didn't hesitate to stop serving chicken when the country's only sustainable poultry farm went out of business, and replaced it with seafood plates he can serve with good conscience. The only meat dish currently on the menu is lamb from a farm just across the water. There hasn't been livestock investment yet since the eruption. In the eyes of the locals, we might be becoming weirder and weirder as we keep pulling the safe choices off the menu, but in order to strengthen Slipperin as a restaurant, we have to. While Gisli's food has been successful, it's hard to run a restaurant, source quality sustainable ingredients, and feel good about those choices under these conditions. Everyone is always trying to cut costs. There are fewer and fewer organic farmers. This may be getting a bit too political, but food is culture. We need to provide incentives for people to create a healthy food community. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. And that's not just farmers, but food production as a whole. As we're seeing the resources in the seafood industry gather in fewer and larger companies, it means cutting costs, and it means killing diversity. In recent years, the government has started taking steps to incentivize food production in Iceland, establishing a fund intended to encourage small producers. But then there are so many rules and regulations counteracting these initiatives and small producers. They just published the government's food production policy for the next 15 years, and they didn't include one chef in the process, and no farmers. In the 10 years Gisli has been cooking in Westmanair, he's seen how things can change. At this point, the large companies here want to cooperate with us. We get our fish directly from the fish market and cooperate with smaller startups on the islands and farmers on the other side of the water. Preparing myself for the ferry ride back, the taste of halibut, birch and angelica lingers on my taste buds as I breathe in the fresh scent of the ocean, a summer day in Westmanair filling up all my senses. I really wouldn't want to lose this lunch. Well, thanks for sharing the piece today, uh, Greta. You're welcome. So uh, it's actually a little bit synchronous uh, as we're recording this. Uh, it, uh, I believe Slipperin is actually opening uh, today uh, for their, what, 10th 
season? Their 11th season. We visited them last uh, fall at the end of their 10th season. Ah, okay. Well, uh, congratulations to Slipperin. <laughs> <laughs> um, so New Nordic has been established for some time now. Uh, you know, we've mentioned these uh, very well-known restaurants, Noma, which actually did noticeably close, uh, I believe, uh, this year. It is closing, yes. Uh, and also Favikin, uh, which is uh, Chef Magnus Nielsen's restaurant, which also uh, closed in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the kind of first wave, I think, of new Nordic cuisine has been like pretty established, actually. Um, and, you know, I mean, I guess what I'm kind of just thinking is, you know, like how, like, like this isn't really a totally cutting edge idea anymore. Um, but, you know, now that this is established, it's here, like how can kind of Iceland implement this and, you know, maybe what, uh, what lessons maybe can Icelandic restaurants learn uh, from the new Nordic movement? Mm. So first of all, you mentioned Noma and Fabrikin, both of uh, which were um, very upscale fine dining restaurants. And the thing about Slippering is that they, while they do uh, serve some delicious dishes, they're not a... a they're not a Michelin star restaurant. They're much more uh, of a casual environment despite their uh, ambitious menu and, and uh, the philosophy behind their food. So, I mean, that's for the first thing, one of the issues that Noma was facing, that the kind of uh, labor-intensive food they were making just wasn't financially viable anymore. So, I mean, um, in that way, Slippering has a very different approach. As Gisli repeatedly says, they're not trying to make Michelin star food. They're not trying to make food for critics. They're just trying to make good food mm. from the local ingredients. But what uh, this sort of wave of of uh, food philosophy has done is that it has uh, awakened Icelandic chefs to the possibilities of Icelandic ingredients. Um, Dill obviously were the first restaurant to sort of bring this to Iceland. They have a, a Michelin star as well. Um, and they uh, do a very delicious version of this uh, type of food. But there's so many aspects to it. There's the local herbs and, uh, you know, locally sourced ingredients, but there's also the, you know, zero waste or like low waste uh, policy they try to apply to their food. Um, yeah, you know, having spoken recently about uh, just the circular economy, mm. it really kind of struck me um, in revisiting this piece, you know, how much of that kind of code of ethics is also at play here. Uh, like just this idea of zero waste, uh, planning menu around, you know, not just a nice cod fillet, but the entire cod, uh, the collarbone, the head. Uh, kind of planning uh, how to utilize the waste, the fr uh, you know, kind of fermenting these various things, uh, kind of incorporating scraps uh, back into you know maybe broth and stock and things like that. Exactly, um, and that's uh, actually a lot more uh, like how restaurants were run like several decades ago. Like that, chefs would be you know getting in whole fish and and animals and and doing some fishmongering and butchering in in the kitchen. And then making the stocks and everything, but you know, with uh, 
with the industry developing, it's become so much easier to access quality stocks and stuff without having to do it in the kitchen. Well, yeah, and, of and course, I mean, like uh, a lot of these things are also skills that are increasingly lost. You know, I mean, uh, like it's really easy to order from these large food suppliers, kind of ready-made mm. fillets and things. Uh, and, you know, there's no longer maybe so much butchering, for instance, being done in the average kitchen. Right, uh, especially with the cost of labor rising. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's such a big part of... Uh, the price of food in restaurants today that uh, yeah you want to <laughs> you can't really uh, it doesn't make sense for every restaurant to have all the chefs out picking herbs <laughs> and then uh, uh, cutting a whole fish up for parts <laughs> all day yeah I mean something that I've also thought about is you know in fine dining I think for a very long time uh, the standard has really been kind of classical French cooking mm. and there's a lot of these dishes a lot of uh, like the components of dishes I mean like for instance I think a good example is something like demi-glace mm -hmm. uh, which is actually a pretty uh, resource intensive thing to make uh, it involves basically a lot of like veal bone um, and you know it in some situations that is something that kind of makes sense to make um, but it's also maybe not totally practical to kind of have this standard of cooking to be like the only standard for high class cooking in the world. Right. And I think that like one of the most interesting things that's happening in food is maybe also kind of like overcoming this image of what, uh, you know, good cooking actually looks like. Right. We have this interna international sense of, as Kisle mentioned, you know, what's what's good food. It's, it's you know, lobster and it's uh, truffles and caviar and, and Kobe beef and uh, stuff like that. But, uh, you know, you can get that in most places. You can get that almost everywhere. Sure, you have to pay for it, especially in um, different places. But, like, the luxury of the food you get served can only be made in that certain place like you have to the <laughs> that's exclusivity you can't you just can't buy <laughs> so i mean yeah that's a whole different way of of looking at it and it's just like it's just different as well if you've if you've had you know a lovely steak with demi sauce somewhere it's gonna be pretty similar everywhere else but if you have a a hitna birch smoked cod fillet mm. with angelica fermented angelica or, or whatever it is and uh slipper in investment air with a cr all around you and uh you know a walk around the island on a summer evening like that's an experience so something uh that's also kind of at play here is you know, I think in the last decade or two, there's also really been a big elevation of food. Mm -hmm. um, I think that it's just something that is on people's minds a lot more, both as a kind of elevated form of culture and art even. Uh, but, you know, I mean, also the more political and environmental kind of aspect of the food question. Um, you know, I mean, also, like, like just in a very uh, basic sense, you know, I think that you know, maybe 20 years ago, uh, a lot of people might not be that happy if, you know, 
their child was training to be a chef. Uh, like it maybe <laughs> wasn't like the most prestigious uh, field to go into. But, you know, I mean, now uh, increasingly like, you know, I mean, like, for instance, uh, it's called the CIA, but it's not that CIA, the, like the Culinary Institute of uh, America. You know, like this is, I mean, really kind of like an Ivy League university almost for food. And, you know, I mean, I, I think it on the one hand also has a lot to do with like increased food media, like a lot of, mm. you know, uh, just classic travel food. And, you know, I mean, like everything from Nigella Lawson to, yeah, I mean, of course, Anthony Bourdain is an obvious reference point there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I mean, food is just a lot more on our minds. Um, but I mean, also food is really increasingly like I think as important to most people as you know, all other forms of culture that we have, you know, kind of busied ourselves with for so long, whether it's literature or music or... You know. Yes, and I mean, uh, Westmanland is getting to a point where it's uh, going to be this uh, food destination where you can go and you can... Um, people will travel uh, to Iceland and then take a specific trip to the Westman Islands to try the food there. Um, and that's something... I never would have thought of 10 years ago. Mm. Yeah, I mean, of course, uh, Noma was in Copenhagen, but if I recall correctly, Favikin, uh Magnus Nielsen's restaurant, was also, you know, I mean, basically just in the forest mm. in Sweden. I yeah, mean, like, it like, required a, a, a long journey. And I mean, same with Cox in Feirear, and they have a, actually have, a, have had for the past couple of summers, I think, uh, uh, had an outpost of that restaurant in Greenland. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, but it's also interesting that, you know, I mean, increasingly this, re like these restaurants can actually count on there being enough people that are actually willing to make these journeys, you know, because these places aren't just, um, you know, it's not in downtown Reykjavik. Uh, they are kind of, in a sense, uh, expecting people to kind of put in this extra effort to seek it out. Mm. Uh, but increasingly, it's clear that it's worth it, right? <laughs> yes. And I mean, if you think about it, some of the most like vivid memories I have of, of my travels is just like this, you know, Mandarin orange I bought at a market in Nice and, and ate on the beach there. Or, uh, mm. yeah, this uh, marrow bone that was fire roasted that I ate in Greece. Like these are the... Not the only things that stick out, of course, but like these sort of like sense-based memories, I yeah. guess, it's sort of uh, stick out. Yeah, I mean, certainly, I think food tourism is also on the rise. And yeah, I mean, like you say, uh, you know, so much of travel is also just the experiences and it's not just the kind of material things that we take away. Mm -hmm. um, and one thing about uh, tourism in Iceland is um, it, you know, it's the eye of the visitor. It sort of helps you sort of see your own country in a in a more clear light. Like uh, and uh, like seafood in Iceland. Um, as a kid, I just ate a lot of boiled white fish, <laughs> <laughs> and like that is not the most appetizing way to cook fish. But like. Uh, right now, you see all these people coming in there. Like, oh, you here you have great access to seafood then can you make something delicious or like uh, yeah i guess we can i guess we do have great seafood like it's it it always helps when someone uh points out what's right in front of your nose yeah i mean i uh just a funny little anecdote i mean i have to admit that uh sometimes i've perceived icelandic food ways to be a little bit set in their ways uh, <laughs> i just remember this one time 
um, you know, I was having my uncle over for a panukukur, uh, and I was eating my uh, my my pancake or crepe uh, with with some skewer on the side. It was like like one of these skewers <laughs> with like strawberry in it or something, and he just was shocked. Yes, uh, because that's not how one eats a pancake. Yeah, that sounds that does actually sound very strange to me, but might be perhaps delicious. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so something <clears throat> I think that also might kind of run against some people's expectations is, you know, so they don't have a Michelin star, of course, but, mm-hmm. you know, this is a fine dining restaurant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet at the same time, it's also, you know, kind of mom and pop. It's run with his family. Uh, I think that a lot of people might, you know, you know, like we don't necessarily think of these elite fine dining restaurants uh, also being family run businesses all the time. <laughs> No, well, I will say this is um, there's a very specific type of restaurant that strives for Michelin star, and for that you have to have like an experience. You have to have like white tablecloths and like uh, you know, uh, uh, it's a very certain type of of restaurant. And Slipin is not that. Like it's very, it's much more casual than you would think, considering the sort of like um, you know renown it's gained and and the the ambitious food it serves. But it is still just like a, it's a pretty big food hall. Um, it's a very, you know, relaxed environment. And yeah, they're not trying to go for that high luxury, you know, experience that you might expect from a Michelin star restaurant. But uh, they're, yeah, like Gisli said, they're just trying to make good food. It also might be worth noting uh, for the audience that Slipperin just, the word uh, is uh, like 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 a like a dry dock. It's where ships go to be taken out of the water to be worked on. So you know, I mean, there's like there's very much this kind of uh, practical everyday sense. I think to it, there's a certain kind of just rough and readiness uh, mm, in the name itself. Um, and you know, something that I think also goes along with being a family-run restaurant is also just the environment that you describe working there and. You know, uh, the world of fine dining can be an extremely stressful environment. And so I think it's really refreshing to kind of hear about this kind of restaurant that is really prioritizing a healthy work culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think, you know, anybody that's worked in the food industry or knows anything about it knows that, you know, 12, 14, 16 hour shifts are the norm. Uh, You know, some of these world class chefs can be divas and uh, maybe potentially not the nicest people to work for. Uh, but, you know, I have to say uh, in my small encounters with the world of new Nordic cuisine, it seems to create very nice people. Uh, I'm not totally sure why that is, but it, it seems to it seems to do that. Well, I haven't seen the inside of a working kitchen during uh, service uh, at the sure. <laughs> New Nordic restaurant, but uh, so I will only make commit to saying that Gisle is a really nice guy. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, uh, thank you for talking today, Greta. Thank you. Oh, and uh, one more thing. If you enjoyed listening today, uh, you can get 40% off an online annual subscription today at IcelandReview.com with the coupon code ICELANDREVIEW23. So that works out to just be three euros a month for access to all of our online articles and all of our interviews and everything. Uh, and again, that is ICELANDREVIEW23, all lowercase, ICELANDREVIEW23.